It's a pleasure to be back with you, continue to study the Word together, and we're going to do that tonight in our evening Bible study time together as a church. We're getting our way through this biblical leadership series, almost done with the first part on the preparation for leadership, and looking forward to uh, carrying on. So let's begin our time with a word of prayer, and we'll get started. Lord God, tonight we get to study the character of, of the leader in the church, the biblical leader, and we need to take this to, to ourselves first and apply it to our own lives before we worry about really leading others. May, may we just meet these character qualifications just ourselves, that we might reflect Christ, that we might be more like Him and be made more like Him. And we all have a, a long way to go still. We thank You for the grace You've already given to us that we've been made like Christ as far as we have. But nonetheless, we've got a ways to go and we still fall short in so many ways. The standard in Christ even, even then is still unreachable in a sense. But of course, by your grace, you enable us to grow and to overcome the flesh and to really seek you and, and mature in our character. So we pray we, we do this to ourselves and apply this to ourselves first, that we might really bear fruit and, and please you and then lead others, or we can say to them, you know, follow me as I follow Christ. So bless us in this and enable us in this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, guys, we're pretty much just picking up where we finished uh, left off, rather, from last time. This is still Lesson 7, the character of the biblical leader. So this is technically part two, because we got through uh, just about half last time of these character qualifications of the biblical leader. This is coming from Titus 1, 5 through 9. So you can turn there to begin, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. This is a list of qualifications for elders in the church. And we'll begin by reading it again. And from this, we're deriving some character qualifications for all leaders in the church. I'll start reading as you get there. Titus 1, 5 through 9. We have Paul saying to Titus, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains, and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Namely, if any man is above reproach, the husband of one wife, having children who believe, not accused of dissipation or rebellion. For the overseer must be above reproach as God's steward, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain, but hospitable, loving what is good, sensible, just, devout, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word, which is in accordance with the teaching, so that he will be able to both exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. So here we go. have one of the two main passages of elder qualifications in the New Testament. Well, we made the point, though, that these are four elders, but they apply to all and they apply to others. Do you remember some of those ways that, that this passage, these qualifications might apply to non-elders? Do you remember any? Or ways that these qualifications apply to all? Yeah, you look at the character of the elder here, and and as you start to pay a little more attention, and as you you know your New Testament, this is just Christian character. Really not all that special, actually, just Christian character. This is how we all are to to live and model Christ. And we found that there's really only one standard of godliness, Christ himself. What's going on in this list is that elders are merely being held to a higher accountability to the one and only standard of Christ-likeness. But this standard is really for all of us in the church. We found also this is how to pray for leaders. This is how to look for leaders. This is how to hold leaders accountable. How to aspire to leadership. But in general, you can take, this, take away from this, this is just how to be a Christian. How to be a mature and godly Christian. That's what this list of qualifications represent. And for us here in this biblical leadership series, for some of you, maybe you're aspiring to be a, a small group leader or ministry leader. And look, you may not be held to the same level of accountability as an elder in the church, but nonetheless, should you not be called to meet this standard to a pretty high degree, if you're going to bear the name of Christ and represent Christ in any way, and especially any formal or even semi-formal way, I'm certainly of the opinion that, yeah, you should be held to a level of accountability here with these qualifications. It's just a measuring point, 
measuring rod of your character next to Christ. Now, in this list, there's one overall overarching qualification. Do you remember what that was? The umbrella qualification. Above reproach. Yeah, to be above reproach. That's, in a way, the overall qualification given in all of these categories to be above reproach, beyond reproach. He repeats it. It's said elsewhere as well. And then after that, he starts off with two family qualifications, basically being a godly spouse and a godly parent. We learned the lesson last time that your leadership starts in the home. Before you worry about leading the church and leading others, leading a crowd, just start with you, your spouse, your kids, and be an effective and proven godly leader in the home. But then he gets into these 11 character qualifications, starting with five negative qualities to avoid. That's just where we got last week. We got through these five negative qualities to avoid, all in verse 7. Not being self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. And we also learned that these five negatives, they all have to do with control. They describe the person who's controlled by self, controlled by emotions, controlled by wine, controlled by violence, controlled by money. But in contrast to this, the, the Christian and certainly the leader is to be controlled by the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit and controlled by the Spirit, not these other things. Well, that's where we left off. No need to do any more recap than that. We want to carry it on and, and finish this lesson tonight on the character of biblical leadership. And so we're going to turn our attention to these six positive qualities to possess. And if there's time left over at the end, we can throw in a few bonus qualities from other passages as well. But let's just see how far we get. So now we're going to look at verse 8 and look at these six positive qualities to possess here in Titus chapter 1. So let's pick this up. So the first of these is going to be verse 8, hospitable, being hospitable. Today, when we think of hospitality, we think of having some friends over for dinner. And I think a lot of people think of hospitality today as just being a good dinner host. That's, that's as far as hospitality goes, like just be a good dinner host. And look, that, that certainly is an expression of biblical hospitality, but biblically, hospitality goes much further. The Greek word for hospitality, philozenos, comes from the word phileo, to love, xenos, which means stranger or foreigner. And so the word for hospitality literally is a love of the stranger, a love of foreigners. It refers to showing love and warmth to people who aren't necessarily your, just your friends and family, but a broader circle, even the stranger, just the one who is in need. Hospitality is showing love and care and concern for the one who is in need, even if it's a stranger. One of my old professors used to define hospitality as making others feel at home wherever you are. Even if you're at a restaurant or you're on vacation, you're just making others, in a sense, you know, feel at home wherever you are, meeting their needs. Even if you're out to lunch with someone, you can be hospitable, you can buy their meal, give them a ride. It's whatever it is to meet the needs of others, of those in need. Most of you know that before I came here, I was a college pastor, and most college students believed that hospitality didn't apply to them because they didn't have a house, right? You got to have a house so you can have people over, and then you can practice hospitality. But until you have a place, well, this doesn't really count. But I had one student who realized that was wrong. That was a, a far too narrow view of hospitality. And so he wanted to do his part to be hospitable. So you didn't know what he did. He cleaned his car. He cleaned out his car. His car was like a hoarder's car, pretty much. And uh, no one could fit in it but himself. He totally cleaned it out, made it presentable and nice in order he, that he could just start giving people rides. And that is a perfectly legitimate expression of hospitality. I try to get the picture. You know, what can you do? doesn't matter what stage of life you're in or how rich you are. You don't need to have a nice house with everything perfect, just, just right, that you can finally have people over and be hospitable. That really means nothing, actually, when it comes to hospitality. But God wants all of his people to practice hospitality, and that's just looking out for the needs of others wherever you are in life. 
Now, keep in mind, there are several ways to, you might say, nullify or cancel out your show of hospitality. So think about that. How can you, or rather, how can a person, not just you, but how can someone show hospitality in the wrong way? Yeah, Megan? Yeah, selfish moves like, what can I get out of this? If I buy lunch for this person this week, he might buy me a better lunch next week. All right? You could get a little one up there. Okay, selfish motives. Yeah? Luke? Okay, so you're being selective. That's what we learned in James, a showing of partiality. Yeah, introducing that sin would, in a way, you know, counteract that show of love, of hospitality. Dave? Okay, yeah, boasting, where you, you're kind of doing it for brownie points. Yeah, not having a happy heart, and that's going to be expressed usually by complaining. That, that's one of the answers I was looking for, just complaining. Now, if you get the heart attitude behind hospitality wrong, then it, it's not going to do much good. And let's say someone at church had a flood in their house. They need a place to, to stay for a couple of nights, maybe in a couple of weeks while the insurance, you know, they get it all fixed and repaired. And so you kind of feel guilty, but you go ahead and let them stay with you for a couple of nights or a couple of weeks or staying at your house. You're showing hospitality. Letting someone crash at your place for some time, that's a show of hospitality. But all the while, secretly, you're complaining. You're, you're, you have a begrudging spirit. This is a, this is a huge inconvenience, and you're, you're not happy about this one bit. Now, technically, you are providing them with lodging, with care. But do you think that is what God has in mind when he wants his people to be hospitable? Not quite. I mean, that's, that's the, the deed without the heart or the spirit behind it. It's kind of interesting. 1 Peter 4, 9 says, Be hospitable to one another without complaint. It's not hard to imagine why he had to add the last part. Why not just say, be hospitable to one another? But he said, no, without complaint. Because I think he, he takes, I, I take it he knows us well and knows human nature well. We're just prone to complain. But like I said, don't nullify or cancel out hospitality by uh, complaining or, or, or having selfish motives or having a show of pride or being selective. Biblical hospitality really expects nothing in return. And it's an expression of selfless love, which you can imagine that's why it's, it's a critical requirement for leaders. When you think about it, like, what's the big deal? Why, why does a leader need to have the requirement of hospitality, of being hospitable? I can get how that would be a requirement for like, maybe like for a deacon or someone who serves, but why is it such a big deal that the leader in the church checks this box that they're hospitable? Yeah, that's it right there. I mean, it's just a reflection of the identity of the leader. You guys remember the identity of the biblical leader? You just said it, sacrificial servant. I'm going to keep saying that. And this is one of the huge reflections of that. Such hospitality, when it comes from the right heart motives, it's a, it's a legitimate, it's a concrete expression of love. This is a real way to show tangible love to others. In a way that oftentimes, just by definition, is is sacrificial. You are being the sacrificial servant when you're giving up time, money, energy, space, your your house, or whatever, to serve the needs of others. You're you're showing Christ and his character of being a sacrificial servant. Uh, It characterized Christ himself. It's no wonder that God wants his people and, and his leaders characterized by the same attitude. Elders and leaders really can't neglect the importance of hospitality. It comes with some fringe benefits. Shepherding is not a long-distance relationship. You can't really shepherd from afar. You need to be with people. Be with those you are over. Have them see you. Remember we talked about the example of the leader? They should see you in your home, just in life, out with your kids. Just even out of the the church-building context. And practicing hospitality allows you to do that, that they can see your faith is real even behind closed doors. But just showing real Christ-like love and sacrificial care for the needs of others, that's got to be a mark of all Christians, but especially the leader in the church. This is the first positive quality to possess, being hospitable. 
think oftentimes flies under the radar, but let's be reminded of that. Number two, loving what is good. Loving what is good. Believers and leaders and elders especially must love what is good. It means to delight in that which is profitable and righteous and good. And it's really a good way to think about this characteristic. What do you delight in? What do you take pleasure or enjoyment in? What what brings you joy? That which is good or that which is evil? This is another one that I think also flies under the radar. We read right over this. Don't give it much thought. But when's the last time you you examined your life and just thought about what, what you're delighting in and, you know, is it good or bad? Am I delighting in that which is good or, or evil? We're not talking about just being a loving person, but he says loving what is good. So what are the objects of your affection, your desire, your joy in life? It's an important question because we live in a day and an age where there's so much temptation for you to love and be drawn to that which is not good give you a little food for thought, but just think about all the media you ingest. In today's world, that, that's a big category of life, is all the media you ingest. All the TV shows you watch, the movies you watch, the music you listen to, everything you look at online. Just think of all that content, and would you say it falls into the category of maybe neutral, or this is, this is, this is loving what is good, or maybe loving what is evil? How would you describe the content of the shows you watch, the music you listen to? Is it filled with good or evil, righteousness or wickedness? Does the stuff you watch resemble more you know, the list of the deeds of the flesh in Galatians 5? Immorality, impurity, sensuality, and so on. Or does it resemble more the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, I hope you think through this even further. This is a bit of a tangent, but like I said, this is for all of us, not just leaders. We take drunkenness, for example. Is it wrong to watch a TV show or a movie that depicts people getting drunk? What about adultery? What about sex outside of marriage? What about greed? What about murder? How should you think through these questions? I'm not going to resort to legalism and start giving you a list of what you can watch, what you can't watch. But these are questions worth asking, right? Legitimate questions for you to ask yourself. But here's more food for thought. Hey, even the Bible contains episodes and stories featuring drunkenness, adultery, sex outside of marriage, greed, murder. So should we not read portions of the Bible? Obviously, that's not the answer. What's the difference, though? Between reading about Noah getting drunk after the flood and watching someone on a show getting drunk. Well, the difference you need to consider is the light in which sin is portrayed. The light in which sin is portrayed. Just think about what you watch, what you listen to. And is sin being portrayed in the best possible light or the worst? Is sin being displayed as as a good thing, something to be enjoyed or is it being shown for what it is? This is sinful. This is hurtful. This is bad. I trust you can, ta- you can see the difference. You can take, for example, a, a show from a little while ago, Sex in the City. Thankfully, I can say I never saw the show, thankfully, right? But I know about it. It's kind of pretty evident in the title. <laughs> and from what I know, that the show is all about really promoting, in a way, glorifying sex outside of marriage as being just you know, fulfilling for the modern woman, right? And millions of women across America were, were taking it in. You might think, well, hey, just because you watch a show doesn't mean you're participating in it. Watching is not the same thing as, as doing something, right? Well, that's true, but what does this characteristic say in Titus 1.8? It doesn't say just doing what is good, although that's important too. This says loving what is good. It's talking about what you love, what you delight in what you derive joy and pleasure from. And that, I would say, most certainly does extend to your entertainment choices. Wouldn't you agree? You know, media today in the form of shows and music, it has an extraordinary power to influence you. Movies and shows can pull on your heartstrings, and pretty soon 
You're, you're going to find yourself and you're rooting for the murderer or the thief or the adulterer. You, you want him or her to, to succeed or whatnot in the venture. But when you stop and think about it, it can be a fairly inconsistent thing for a Christian to do. You're, you're, you're rooting for technically the, the bad guy, the immoral person. We all can easily fall prey if you just take your mind out of it. We all can fall prey to that real fast. Like I said, I'm not going to give you a list. This is on you for your own discernment and discretion. But think about a passage like Ephesians 5, 3 through 4, which says, But immorality or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And there, be, there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Ephesians 5, 3 through 4. Notice he says, these vices must not even be named among you. Why? Well, your name is a Christian. You, you bear the name of Christ. You are an ambassador of Christ. And these aren't fitting for his name. And you can see why this is such an important characteristic now for the leader who, in a way, in a higher level is representing the name of Christ, right? The elder for sure, and just even, you know, go up the chain of leadership. You're more and more representing his name. And then, therefore, this shouldn't be attached to your name. should not even be named among you. And uh, do you think that relates to some of the things you might watch or delight in? So, it continues in Ephesians 5. He says in verse 7, Do not be partakers with them, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. He says in verse 11, Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them, for it is disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. So look, it's, it's disgraceful to even speak of the things which are done in secret by those in the world living in gross immorality, by, you know, here, you know, the Gentile, the pagan. Disgraceful to even speak of them. So does it sit well with your conscience to watch them? To, to kind of take it in and delight in it. It's being portrayed in a positive light and you're enjoying it. It's, we, we don't speak about it, but you know, I can watch it and listen to it and enjoy it and pay money for it. You know, let your conscience be perturbed a little bit. That's okay. You know, that's the point here. And know this, though, there's something better out there, something pleasing to God. And it's not like we're anti-fun or anti-entertainment. I think we all you know, enjoy it, but love what is good. Challenge yourself to love what is good and delight in that which is good. As Christians and as leaders, be checking your actions, checking your motives. Do a little self-check, a self-inventory. Am I really delighting in that which is good here? Or have you been tricked into loving that which is not good? And for sure, elders and then certainly leaders of all levels should be the example and be characterized by the former, loving what is good. So there's a second requirement for us in the positive, loving what is good. Number three, continuing in verse eight, of these positive character requirements for the leader. Number three, being sensible. Being sensible, this, this word shows up all throughout Titus, First, Second Timothy, in the pastorals, Paul just tells these young men, this is top of the list, right? Be sensible. NASB says sensible, New King James, sober-minded, ESV, self-controlled. Literally, the word means having a sound mind, a healthy mind, prudent, moderate, in a way rational could be synonyms. Makes me think of like the, the Vulcans from Star Trek, where they're just rational. They were level-headed. They don't make rash or emotional distinctions. It's sensible. The word refers to one who is able to control his mind, curb his desires, produce an orderly life. So you can see why it's sometimes translated as self-control. The sensible person is one who has control over his thoughts and actions. You know the right thing to say at the right time. You know the right thing to do and the right time to do it. Let's say, for example, we have a friend they're in the hospital. You know, one, one day they, were, they decided to jaywalk. They didn't look both ways before they crossed. They got hit by a car. They broke both legs. They're in the hospital. They don't have insurance. 
So now they're, this person is out of work, out of money, sufferings and pain. You show up in the hospital and you, the first thing you say is, yeah, I guess you really should have looked both ways before you crossed. Maybe not the most sensible thing to say or, or do. You get the point. And said that the sensible person has control over his thoughts and actions such that he or she exercises good judgment, prudent thinking and doing, discretion, common sense. And you can imagine, but you can help me out. Why is this one such a big deal for the leader? It's in all the lists for the elder. Why is it so important that the leader be sensible, sober-minded? Okay, for one, leading an example that others are to follow. This is for all of us, for sure. Okay, having tact, not offending people for the wrong reasons that the gospel offend. I mean, think, of the, think of the opposite. Think of the negative example. Think of the leader who is not sensible, who doesn't say the right things at the right time, or who, who says the wrong things, does the wrong things at the wrong time. What's the danger there? What's that, Grace? Leading people astray or even just offending people wrongly? You know, a leader especially can do a lot of damage. The one who says the wrong things at the wrong time can stumble the weak, stumble the immature, offend others, and uh, turn people away, do a lot of damage. They can get themselves into trouble by not being sensible or or level-headed. And just think of how many leaders have fallen because they said the wrong thing in the wrong way or at the wrong time. Even if if you're into recent news, Elon Musk, CEO of of Tesla, is kind of having like a breakdown and was using Twitter and tweeted that he wanted to take the company private, just rebuy it. And that just created a huge storm and made everything in his life a lot worse. And it was just an impulsive, emotional thing he tweeted out. Not so sensible, and he's going to pay the price for it. We can also remember, you know, President George W. Bush, he got so much criticism for landing on an aircraft carrier at the beginning of the Iraq war in front of a banner that read mission accomplished. And for a lot of people, that was wrong thing at the wrong time. And he later regretted that move and got a lot of flack for it. Just maybe not the best timing. You know, leaders in the church must be sensible. They must display control over their thoughts and actions, not lose their cool, always maintain their pose and leadership. Your example matters. People are following your lead And we have to be careful not to stumble others, not to wrongly offend others, lead others astray. Being sensible is crucial for that. Next, being just. Number four here, being just. Elders must be upright, righteous, and just. And you think of an unjust leader in the church, and it's, it's, again, it's a bit redundant, but We've said it many times, you're representing Christ. You're, you're bearing the name of Christ. And the problem with an unjust leader, a leader who's not characterized by God's standard of righteousness and justice, that they're dragging Christ's name through the mud. And they're representing, by, by bearing the name of Christ, an unjust God to lead others to think, well, if they're unjust and they represent, they're, they're with that religion and that God, their God must not be a lot better. I mean, think back, don't, don't we even criticize the Inquisition? Now, granted, that was the Catholic Church, so us Protestants can feel a little bit better about that. It wasn't us, it wasn't our people doing that. Although, don't get me wrong, Protestants have done plenty of bad things throughout history. But that, that was, there, there was no justice in the, the Spanish Inquisition from the Catholic Church and the other Inquisitions as well. And uh, look, look what a, a huge slander against the church. How many from then on have recognized the lack of justice, at least in the Catholic church in that era, and turned away from it and thought their, their God was unjust. I, I trust you get the point. God wants his leaders to, to be characterized by his own justice and righteousness because they're representing him. And he is a God of justice. He's a God who's just. He's fair. The decisions elders make, for sure, many times they can affect the lives of people in the local church. They can really alter the course of some people's lives. And so they need to do that which is right. 
that there's, there's enough injustice out there in the world. The church should be a refuge for real justice and righteousness. And the church is no place for people who are going to use the church to benefit themselves. There's a tie-in here with one of the other requirements from last week, namely being free from the love of money. And whenever you see a, a leader who rises, who has that thirst for money and love of money, well, it's usually not long before he's going to twist justice and not really be fair to benefit himself. Proverbs 17.23 says, A wicked man receives a bribe from the bosom to pervert the ways of justice. And those just seem to go hand in hand. You know, a good way of thinking of this requirement, this characteristic, is, like I said before, just being fair. Being fair in your dealings with others. And so does that sound like you? Are you fair in your dealings with others? Are you one who might, might cheat a little to get ahead? It doesn't bother you so much. Maybe even sin if it's going to advance yourself. Or do you seek to do that which is right? Even if it costs you, you'll do the right thing. Even if you suffer or it costs you. You know, tax season rolls around. What do you do? Smudge a few numbers to to help yourself out. Lie a little to to get ahead. Or are you going to be upright and just even at a cost? In the ancient world, there were a lot of cheats. It was easy to, to cheat people. For example, if you wanted to, to buy something, you could pay a form of currency. You could trade. Weren't a lot of cultures that had paper money. So often it was coinage or, or just precious metals. You were exchanging precious metals for something. And payment wasn't by amount, but by weight. It, payment came in weight, not just you know, one coin, sometimes they had coins, but often it was just by a weight value. So let's say you wanted to buy a horse from someone, and I'll just make something up because I have, really have no idea, but let's say it's an ounce of gold, right? An ounce of gold to buy a horse. Well, so if you wanted to do that, you would, you'd have an ounce of gold, you'd present it, and they would, they would weigh it. They'd get some scales. They don't have modern electric scales. They had, you know, ancient scales, literally a a scale consisted of two suspended pans that were connected to each other. You know what it looks like. Think of like Lady Justice holding the scales. And you would take a known weight. So you'd have maybe a piece of lead that you knew weighed one ounce. You put it on one side. And you start adding some gold until they, they level out. And so now you have an ounce of gold. And you, you pay your ounce of gold, you get the horse, right? That's how transactions worked oftentimes in the ancient world. There's only one problem with this. How do you know that ounce of lead is really one ounce? Maybe the guy slipped in a a lead that was actually 1.2 ounces. And so now you just weighed out 1.2 ounces of gold. You got a little extra gold in the equation. That's called using an unjust weight. And it's quite common. If that makes sense to you, then you can understand a few Proverbs that speak of this. Like Proverbs 11 verse 1 says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord but a just weight is his delight. Or Proverbs twenty twenty three: differing weights are an abomination to the Lord and a false scale is not good. That's what they're talking about. That's, that's the context behind some of those verses if you've never knew before. And the principle though, obviously, is just being just, being fair, not cheating others, being honest. Integrity issue, of course. That God himself is a God of justice and equity and integrity And he wants his people to be the same. So whether it's in the marketplace or the workplace or the home or the church, God wants you to be just. And for leaders, it's a requirement. Few things are worse than for people to be captured or stuck under unjust leaders. What's that going to do to the people? It's going to trickle down. That's how corrupt societies form. We've seen some of the South American socialist cultures. The corruption gets out of control at the top and it just trickles down to the government, the education system, the military, the police. And soon there's just, there's no law. Everyone's corrupt and cheating one another. That happened to Israel at one point. You think about Samuel's sons uh, who became judges over Israel. It says it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his son's judges over Israel. This first Samuel 8, 1. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes 
and perverted justice. And every time that happened in Israel, that the people eventually, they're going to they're gonna follow suit. It's gonna, that corruption will trickle down. But the leaders of God's church must not be this way. God demands that his leaders be just and righteous. That they might reflect his justice and righteousness. That they might lead the people to likewise be just and righteous to the glory of God and to our own good. So there's another big uh, positive qualification for the leader, just. We got a couple more to go. So second to last now, verse eight, devout. He must be devout. Now the word devout today typically has an extreme connotation. To be devout means you are, you're sold out. You're extremely committed to your cause. And we think of the, the devout Buddhist monk who takes a vow of poverty and lives in isolation, meditating all day. Or the devout Catholic nun who likewise commits herself to a lifetime of isolation and prayer and service. And so to, to be devout today, we think that's, that's for extreme people. That, that's who's devout. And so we, we think of some devout Christians, you know, they're extremely devout we kind of think they're weird, they're, they're too radical, they're just too committed. But do you know how Christ would label the devout believer? Normal. That, that's supposed to be normal. The person who loves the Lord, who's you know, on fire for the Lord, the, the Jesus freak. We can say like, well, that, you're, you know, it makes people feel uncomfortable because they're actually like doing it. They're actually living the Christian life. And that they like to read and pray and serve and go to church and sing. And, you know, they're, they're really in it. They're, they're sold out for it. And it can make others uncomfortable, like this person's just too extreme. But Jesus would say that that's, that's normal. That's, that's supposed to be normal for his disciples. And radical commitment to Christ, that's simply what Christianity should look like. We think it's ex- extreme today because we've redefined normal as lukewarm. So in American Christianity, lukewarm, well, that's normal. Anything more, like, you're getting a little extreme here, man. Slow it down. But it should not be this way. This word for devout simply refers to anyone who's living rightly before God. Simple as that. That's why most translate this as holy. It's a synonym here, holy. God's people must be holy. The devout person separates himself unto God to do his will and to please him. This is an all-encompassing commitment. Christ's radical discipleship. And the point here in Titus 1 is that leaders of all people, of all those in the church, the leader must model this commitment or this devotion to Christ. If anybody is going to be displaying a passionate pursuit for the things of the Lord, like not perfection, we, we know that, we've, we've covered that, but just, you know, they, they really believe they really are convicted of the truth and they're, they're seeking to live it out. They have a, a real joy in the Lord and a passion for following him and, and serving him. If anyone's going to be like that, it better be the leaders. It better be those who are leading in front, who are out in front of the church, leading the way. And just think about how backward it would be if you had a church where the people were just on fire for the Lord and pursuing Christ and seeking to grow, but the leaders were all just kind of lukewarm. And sadly, there, there's been churches like that. I imagine some of you may have come from churches like that where you see the leadership themselves as lukewarm. And Christ himself rebuked lukewarm churches and, and leaders. And you can think about how that would affect the church membership. For some, it would just be like throwing a wet blanket on a fire. It's just going to it's going to sap the energy out of their own walk. If, if those who are leading you aren't, aren't excited to, to be there and to be serving the Lord, how excited do you expect the people to be? Or others, though, might, might, might find their way out of there because uh, who wants to follow a leader who you know, doesn't believe in the cause, not committed to the cause? And for, for Christianity, for the Christian leader, that's just commitment to Christ, his ways, his word, his will. And the principle holds true that people will rarely rise above their leadership. And that just means that leaders, in many ways, by definition, they set the pace for others. And so if you've ever gone running with a group of people, 
usually that the strongest runner gets out in front, sets the pace, and everyone else is just following that person. And leaders, therefore, need to lead the way in devotion to Christ. If you have elders or a small group leader, and you know they're never reading their Bible or praying, and they're, they're not sensible, they're not, you know, self-controlled and guarding what they watch on TV. Like they're just, they have no passion. They're not really committed to the word, the Lord, the church, what they're doing. Do you want to follow that person? How long are you going to follow that person? And if you do follow that person, what do you think is going to happen to you? you sadly, they might rub off on you by the, by the nature of leadership and you might find yourself slowing down. Like they're setting the pace, but they're like crawling along. You might find yourself moving pretty slow as well. Rather, you find and get behind the devout leader, the person who is, is holy, committed, set apart unto the Lord. And they might set a, a brisk pace, but, you know, God will empower you. You follow them and you, you'll find yourself growing. That's why leaders must be devout. Lastly here, being self-controlled. Being self-controlled. As the NAS puts it, this needs a little explanation. You know what it means to be self-controlled. The hard part is just doing it. Self-control, self-discipline, self-restraint. It's kind of the name of the game for the Christian life, but it can be hard to pull off because the self, and by that we often mean the sinful flesh. It's our enemy number one. You can't listen to the world. The world today is all about the self, telling you to live for yourself, love for yourself, listen to yourself, or rather love yourself and listen to yourself. But what they don't realize is that their true selves are are being controlled by sin and their selves are leading them into destruction. So do not listen to yourself, your, your sinful flesh. Don't listen. Don't love yourself and its desires and don't follow yourself. That's your greatest enemy. You need to instead control yourself and deny yourself. It's what scripture teaches. You've got to put yourself, your flesh on a short leash and keep it in check. Have you ever been walking your dog? For those of you who have dogs and your dog sees another dog or a cat or a squirrel or just a person and they just go crazy. Anyone have a dog like that? I'm sure all have seen dogs like that. Yes? Okay, there you go. Well, you thank God for a leash. That's why leashes were invented. Get a collar, get a leash, you're okay. But can you just imagine, for those of you who have a dog like that, can you imagine you're going to walk your dog around the block with no leash and no collar? How long would it take before they're, they're bolting, chasing something they shouldn't be? 30 seconds, and they're gone. They might never, not even return. Well, excuse the analogy, but your, yourself is like the dog, right? You're, you're the dog. And you need to leash yourself. Otherwise, it's going to take yourself, your flesh, about 30 seconds to go off chasing something it shouldn't be chasing, following after some lust of the flesh, and you're going to fall. And self-control is the leash. Self-control is the leash. The challenge is you have to impose this on yourself. Hey, look, in a way, it's, it's easy to control other people. I think we're all naturals. And we can... At least in our desire, that's part of our sinful flesh, right? But nonetheless, it's, it's hard to control self. You've got to wage that war within. But this attribute, self-control, it's, it's really important. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, recall, the last one mentioned there in Galatians 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The reason self-control is so important, though, is if you get this right, You walk by the Spirit, you're going to bear the fruit of self-control. You get this right, it's going to help you in all these other categories we've been studying, right? I mean, look back at verse 7 of Titus 1. Remember those five negative qualities to avoid? If you're self-controlled, you can do this. To not be self-willed, not quick-tempered, not addicted to wine, not pugnacious, not fond of sordid gain. Our flesh wants to do all those things. Our sinful flesh, the remainders of indwelling sin, wants to take us there. But if you're self-controlled, well, you can do that. You can, you can meet that standard. You can deny those things. 
Self-control is, is huge, therefore. It derives, this, this virtue derives from a spirit-powered self-control. Very much related to the self-control is self-discipline. The two are in many ways the same thing. That's why many versions translate this here as just being disciplined. Disciplined. Elders must be disciplined, which is to say in control of their lives. And, And so it goes for all of us. You need to run your life. Your life should not be running you. You need to run your circumstances and your circumstances not running you and, and so forth. And so think about that. Is, that. is that true for you? Do you feel like life is running you and you're just responding to everything and your life's a mess? Or are you in charge? You're in control as you walk by the Spirit. Any person who lacks this control and this discipline is going to be easy prey for sin. Proverbs 25, 28 says, Like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. In the ancient world, cities relied on their walls for protection from from wild animals, from thieves, and from invading armies. So a city without walls, easy prey. It's kind of easy target, easy picking. And the example he says is, that's like a person without self-control. You're undefended. You're 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 easy picking for sin and for temptation. You're going to fall real quick without self-control. But believers and leaders must be different. They must exert this fruit of the Spirit and control self. And if you recall from verse 7, we learned last week, those five negative qualities to avoid. They were all wrong forms of control. Remember, a person that was controlled by self, controlled by emotions, controlled by wine, violence, or money. They were controlled by all the wrong things, ultimately controlled by self. They let their flesh, their self, be in the driver's seat. But we see now to finish this list, we got to be the opposite. We need to be self-controlled, which is to say spirit-controlled. That is essential to Christian character. And uh, you can imagine essential to Christian leadership. This in a way, as a sandwich in this list here in Titus 1, when it comes to the character qualifications, you start with above reproach, you end with self-controlled. You get those two right, everything in the between is going to be right as well. You find a leader, though, who's not self-controlled. He shouldn't be a leader because he's not going to meet those other requirements by definition. He's not going to make it. You've got to be self-controlled. So these are six in this list here, which is a strong representative list. Of, of the character of the elder in the church. And as we learned last time, by, by principle, any leader should be held to, in large part, and to large measure, this standard here in Titus 1. Five negative, six positive qualities that we need to possess. We have just a little bit of time, so just for a bonus now, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy three. This is the other list, the other main list. There's others like Acts twenty, First Peter five, but this is the other main list where Paul lists off some of these key character qualities for the, the leader, the elder, the pastor, the overseer in the church. And again, we're learning leadership principles from from this. Now notice first, we'll read the one for elders. Notice the overlap. But pay attention if you see something that doesn't overlap. 1 Timothy 3 verse 1. He says, it's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach. The husband of one wife. Remember they start off with a family qualification. Temperate, prudent, respectable. Hospitable, there's that one again, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. 
Verse 7, and he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. So real quick, won't take long on this, but first, did you notice any requirements that are the same? What did you see? What jumps out that's the same, that are very, very similar? Self-controlled, above reproach. One, one wife man, hospitable. Is that what you said? Yeah. Not, not pugnacious, free from the love of money. So uh, to a large degree, I mean, these are very complementary lists. That's why they go together so much. Did you notice any that are, uh, well, I'm not going to say differences because the lists are complementary. They're not contradictory. But the list here in First Timothy 3 adds a few that aren't in Titus. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, that, that's very much thought to be the case. Brand new believers, young believers. So like, what do you do when they're all new converts? <laughs> but in principle, though, yes, the leader, not a new convert, uh, that he's not going to incur the condemnation of the devil, you know, proven character to a large part. And then, uh, so yeah, not a new convert. And then someone over here said, able to teach is a big one. And uh, a good reputation with those outside the church. And so uh, we learn a lot from those as well. You know, that able to teach, that's, a, you know, that we would say a basic spiritual gifting of, of teaching is, is a requirement for the elder, pastor, overseer. But don't let that fool you. We're all called to be able to teach to some degree or another, just to exhort your brother or sister, to encourage them in the word. If you're a parent, called to teach your kids. If you're a husband, called to wash your wife with the water of the word. So to some degree, we're, we're all to be teachers, to communicate the word of God to others. But for the elder, the leader, the power is in God's word to change people. So we're, we are to be ministers of the word. We've learned that. We're going to learn that some more and leadership. So being able to, to handle it, to teach it is obviously going to be central. Not a new convert. Having a good reputation with those outside the church. Why do you think that matters? I mean, who cares what those outside the church think of us? Why do you think he throws that in there? Having a good reputation outside the church. Hmm? Yeah, just that's, that's exactly it. You know, the, the, the slander of hypocrisy. Now, there, there, there's, a, there's, there's a line here when it comes to our reputation outside the church. Because what do you have it when even, even a, a pagan nation or an ungodly nation, they still have a basic standard of right and wrong, right? They have a sense of morals. So if you in the church who claim to be representing the righteous God, if you don't even measure up to the world's morals, you're pretty bad, right? I mean, you should probably not be in leadership. If you can't even meet the world's standards, you're pretty bad. And that's why it's in here that we should, I mean, our standard is much higher, of course, but you should at least be having a standard of, of godliness and morality with those outside the church if you're to represent Christ. The line here, though, that we're encountering in our day and age is, what happens when the, the world's definition of morality changes, like it's happening today, where they're claiming the moral high ground with the, the homosexuality movement, the, the sexual revolution, where now we are the immoral ones because we still believe, as God says, that homosexuality, transgenderism, that they're, they're still sins. And the world says, no, this is, this is love. We are being more loving. We are more moral than the church. So do we just say, well, I guess they're right. We should, you know, change our beliefs that we can have a, you know, higher standing in the world. Obviously, you know, that's not the answer in this case. So be it. Well, they'll have to slander us for a couple hundred years. The world has slandered the church as anti-intellectual because we still hold to the, the word of God in creation and not evolution. So we're, we're dumb. We're backwards and backwoods people. Oh, well, so be it. I guess that's what they'll call us. And now... What are we going to do? We'll accept their slander. We're now the immoral ones, I guess, because we still hold to God's word and God's morality. Uh, so be it. That's just a tangent there, I guess. But otherwise, you know, uh, being, uh, having a good reputation with those outside the church is still, uh, still an important requirement to the degree that the world's morals reflect God's morals. But just to finish with a few remaining minutes, though, I also wanted to read the, the deacon list because in 1 Timothy 3, Unlike Titus, he gives a list of requirements for the deacons in the church. And real, real quick, some tell me what's a deacon in contrast to an elder? 
servant. Yeah, the word deacon, those who serve. These are the servants of the church as opposed to the leaders. This is more of the, the servant from uh, serving behind the scenes. First Timothy 3.8, he says, Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity, not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain, but holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, that's interesting when you think about it. Having studied the elder lists, did you see some of the same qualifications in there for deacons? What were they? You can, you know, shout them out. What, what do you see? Some overlap? Not fond of sordid game. That's the same thing Paul said for elders. Yeah, not given over to uh, wine, not addicted to wine. Same thing. Husband of one wife, being a one-woman man, devoted to your spouse. Beyond reproach. I thought it's just for elders. Okay, I guess it's apparently for deacons too. So what is this telling you? You look at most of these requirements and they're all pretty much, again, there's just one standard and deacons are held to, in many ways, seems like just as high a standard. One notable omission, they're not required to be able to teach, but otherwise, it's a pretty high standard for the deacon. What does that tell you? Why does God care? I mean, the deacons... They're not the leaders of the church. They're not making decisions for the church. They're not the teachers and preachers of the church. They're not leading small groups. These are the people who are serving the, the, the material needs of the church. In Acts 6, they're waiting tables for widows, which is a great thing, but why do they need to be beyond reproach, the deacons of the church? Why do you think? Why, why does that matter? Yeah, and that's the key word. That's exactly right. They're, they're still representing God in Christ. It is, in God's design, a second office in the church. There's elders, there's deacons. That's it. There's no you know, priesthood and all that. So they still have a formal recognition, the deacons of the church. They were appointed. And so they now formally represent the name of Christ, even if they're just serving food. They're still servants of Christ, Christ himself, a servant, and they're representing him. That's why it matters. That's why it matters for every Christian. That's why these these character qualifications matter for everyone. Even if you're not a deacon, that's why this matters. Because we bear the name of Christ. We represent him. And for those in leadership, whether you're a deacon and you're just in servant form of leadership, or the elder who is likewise a servant leader, but also in administering the word and making decisions, your character matters because you, you bear the name of Christ. As Christian and as leader, you bear the name of Christ. And like I mentioned a while ago, for us at this church, if you're going to be a music leader, a small group leader, a ministry leader, a deacon, whatever, whatever your role, if you're going to bear more of the name of Christ, so to speak, well, you've, these are some qualifications and, and they're for you. They're for all of you, but in leadership, we are going to hold you to a higher accountability to the standard, as we should. I would encourage you, though, just to rise up and grow. Challenge yourself to grow in this character. And just remember that to God, character matters. And to God, your character matters more than your abilities. He cares more about who you are than what you can do. Because God can do a lot more with a holy vessel that in the world's standards is not so talented than with an unholy vessel, an unholy person who can do lots, is really talented. God doesn't need that. He's looking for those who are holy, devout, submitted to him, committed to him. Uh, He says he'll work with that, and and he'll make us into something good to his glory. But just know, he cares more about who you are over what you can do. So let's all seek to just foster this character into all of our lives. It's the character of the biblical leader. 
All right, well, that'll finish it up for us. This was part two of this lesson. We're, we're on to uh, just a few more, and then we're done with this first section in uh, biblical leadership. So we'll look forward to that next Sunday night. Why don't you join me in a word of prayer? We'll finish. Our Father God, we, we long that our characters are conformed to, to your will. And the image we've seen this evening, which in, in, in so many ways, it's just the image of Christ. He left behind for us the, the perfect example and what it means to be the, the perfect man, the perfect child of God or servant, uh, to reflect you and your character to the world. In, in your word, you've given us some of these lists, these character qualities, and they're essential for the leader. And, and you know what? They're essential for all of us. It's just what it looks like to be a Christian. And you've called us, Lord, by your grace to yourself. You've saved us. You've forgiven us. You made us new. You've made us your children. And you've given us a new name. The name of Christian, the follower of Christ. We, we represent him now. We are ambassadors of Christ to the world. And so this matters for all of us. I pray you convict us that, uh, to grow, to continue to grow by your grace, by your spirit. That uh, we are, bear the habit of repentance and growth and sanctification in these areas. Because we want to, Lord. I trust, represent you uh, to the world in, in truth and accuracy and love and in holiness. So make this true of us, conform us to your will and to the image of Christ, all to your glory and and our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.